Welcome to the Commonwealth Poetry Podcast. Where we celebrate poetry and the Commonwealth with people from across the Commonwealth. I'm Giles Brandreth. And I'm Afra Brandreth. We're a father and daughter based in London in the UK. But each week, online or in person, we're visiting a different Commonwealth country. And when we get there, we're going to talk about poetry with someone from that country who cares about poetry, knows about poetry, often writes their own poetry. And they're going to share with us two or three of their favourite poems. Where are we off to this week, Avra? New Zealand. We're going to their High Commission in Pall Mall in London to meet the High Commissioner. Wonderful. Before we set off, give us a flavour of New Zealand in just a minute, Avra. 11,500 miles from where we are here in the UK, New Zealand, which is called Aotearoa in Maori, is an island country in the South Pacific Ocean. It has two main islands, North Island and South Island. Its closest neighbour is Australia, which is more than a three-hour flight away to the northwest. And really, it has it all. Mountain ranges, lakes, rivers, a long coastline of sandy beaches. New Zealand has been shaped by volcanic activity, and some of its volcanoes are still active today. New Zealand joined the Commonwealth in 1931 under the Statute of Westminster. Its area is approximately 268,000 square kilometres, And it has a population of just over 5 million people. Which is about the same population, I think, as Scotland. What's the capital? Wellington. And can you guess what their national animal is? Yeah, that's easy. The kiwi. Correct. It is a flightless bird found only in New Zealand. And sometimes people from New Zealand are referred to as kiwis, a nickname which dates back to its use by Australian soldiers in the First World War. We're going to find out more now. Let's get going straight away to meet His Excellency Bede Corrie, High Commissioner of New Zealand in London. Well, today the Commonwealth Poetry Podcast comes from the New Zealand High Commission in London, and we're with the High Commissioner, who glories in the name of Bede Corrie. Well, before we hear about New Zealand and about poetry in New Zealand, let's hear about you, Bede Corrie. What a name! Thank you very much, Giles, and it's a name which connects me to a very important name in uh, English literary and religious history, as I think you know. I guess and it was the Venerable Bede. of Jarrow, indeed. Bede of Jarrow. In a nutshell, for people around the Commonwealth listening to this, why is this a significant figure, Bede? Well, Bede wrote the famed English uh, history of the English church and people, and he it was an extremely important history, I think written in the 8th century. Yeah. I might be wrong there. And it was the first, um, the first significant uh, account of the church as it then was in England. And it of course um, uh, contains some powerful um, uh, metaphors, including one we were talking about earlier about his, his metaphor for the, the pre-Christian soul. Uh, and beyond that, um, he was obviously a major figure in the, in the early days of the church in Britain in, in, um, on uh, in the wilds of Northumbria. Wonderful. It's a great name to have. Why did your parents decide to call you Bede? I think the name appealed to my father in particular, who um, I had some other siblings who were blessed, depending on how you look at it, with uh, Anglo-Saxon type names of a brother called Godfrey and a brother called Edmund. And so I guess Bede was a reasonably logical um, name to choose in that light as well. And Corrie comes from where? Corrie is a Scottish name. Um... Uh, I think rather unpromisingly, 
it refers to a kind of a small declivity in a hillside, large enough um, maybe for a sheep to shelter in, but not grand enough to be called a cave. <laughs> well, this is relevant, this, your, your name in a way, because part of, the, part of the heritage of New Zealand is the old country. So before we begin, before we begin to explore uh, New Zealand poetry, tell us a little bit about New Zealand today. Where New Zealand, well, literally tell us, first of all, where is New Zealand? New Zealand is a set of large islands uh, to the east of Australia. Uh, two very large islands called the North, imaginatively enough, called the North <laughs> and South Islands, but also a number of other sizable islands uh, in that group. Uh, they are very isolated land masses. So our nearest neighbour is probably three hours flight away. So that sense of distance and isolation, that um, inherently maritime environment is something which goes up very significantly to make up the New Zealand character. New Zealand is also a country, you know, since I'm, I am speaking here in London with very deep connections to the United Kingdom. My own forebears came from, came from the British Isles and so did many New Zealanders. And that is a fundamental part of our story, but not the only part, because, of course, New Zealand was already settled when British colonists arrived and American sealers and whalers in the 18th and 19th centuries. New Zealand was settled by its Māori population, now makes up about 17% of the population of New Zealand, and is, of course, a partner in the treaty that was signed with the British Crown in 1840, a treaty whose anniversary we marked um, on the 6th of February. So that is, um, you know, a, the fundamental founding document of New Zealand. So you have uh, the Māori population, the indigenous population, you have British settlers, but contemporary New Zealand is also made up of a very sizable Pacific population and a, a growing uh, population from East Asia. So uh, some of our large cities, such as Auckland, have uh, very large foreign-born populations. So that gives New Zealand a rather different vibe than traditional images of it might suggest that it is not, um, and I don't really encounter this very often in the United Kingdom, but it is, it is not, and indeed never really was, a far-flung part of Britain. Um, and a complete replica of it. It is, it is something with a hugely important British legacy, um, the rule of law, the parliamentary system, the Queen as our head of state, but also its own distinct and independent attributes. And, and coming here today at the High Commission, a lot of the signs are written in Maori. Is, mm -hmm. That's now an official language? Is Maori right? is indeed an official language of New Zealand, uh, a language which successive governments have been determined to protect and advance. Māori can be used in the parliament, Māori can be used in the courts. Um, uh, Māori fluency is not terrific across the entire population of New Zealand, but individual Māori words and phrases are peppering their way into um, English language discourse. M most New Zealanders, or many New Zealanders, would greet you kiora, which is the Māori greeting just common part of English today. Now that's a, a small a small example, but other Māori words are finding their way into into English as it is spoken in New Zealand. So in schools, are you taught Māori? Are lessons done in English and then um, 
separate separate lessons in Maori or uh, n- not in the way that might be found um, y- you know somewhere like Canada um, uh, there is not a sort of uh, deliberate bilingualism in the schools but Maori classes are available um, Maori language nests are available for preschool Maori children and it is possible to go right through the educational curriculum including to high school and study the Maori language. And what about some of the stories that about the founding of New Zealand? Are those sorts of things taught in schools? Or? They are indeed, absolutely. Uh, but there are, in a way, there are layers to this. Um, so there are some of those very important foundational stories about the discovery of New Zealand and then there is uh, individual Māori people and Māori tribes with their own deep lore and knowledge of their ancestry, um, both by name and by reference to mountains and rivers with whom they affiliate. And those are very deeply known and held to by Māori in New Zealand. And European New Zealanders like myself have perhaps a, a lesser perception and understanding of, of that depth of knowledge and connection to the land. Before we get into the poetry, just tell me what is New Zealand about now? What is it commercially about? Mm-hmm. Is it a tourist attraction? Is it an international trading country? What is New Zealand today? Well, since we're talking about poetry, you know, your question puts me in mind of Walt Whitman, um, who I think said, I contain multitudes. New Zealand contains multitudes. Uh, it is still a very significant uh, agriculturally based economy but that has changed um, markedly from simply being a great place for sheep to grow thriving dairy industry viticulture is hugely important as i hope you know when you sample new zealand wine in the uk horticulture uh, venison uh, you know a, a much more sophisticated range of of agricultural products than might have been the case in the past tourism as you say a very important part of our economy because, as Afra knows, New Zealand is a very beautiful place to mm-hmm. visit. It's amazing. I mean, there was, I climbed glaciers and um, just the diversity mm-hmm. in the country mm-hmm. and things that you could see was wonderful. And I jumped out of an aeroplane, which I won't be doing again. So that's a first and only thing to do in New Zealand. <laughs> in addition to um, in addition to agriculture and tourism, um, you know, New Zealand is an increasingly advanced. Um, digital economy. You'll be familiar with the Peter Jackson movies and their extraordinary digital effects which were all created in New Zealand. Um, The sale of education services, our schools and universities are very sought after destinations for students, especially from Asia. So as I say, we contain multitudes. We contain multitudes. Now, when you were a boy, what sort of, at school, what kind of English language teaching was there? What were you taught in terms of literature? What kind of books did you read and what kind of poetry were you first introduced to? My education in New Zealand is now more year, more, more um, uh, distant in the past than I, than I would care to think and so in that sense it was still a relatively traditional uh, education which meant um, probably more points of reference um, in respect of British history than New Zealand history more points of reference in English literature than in New Zealand literature. My generation was um, more often than not grounded in the classics. Um, my parents, uh, among other things, insisted that I study Latin. Uh, I went to a very traditional boys boarding school and the masters of that school um, were very well educated men 
Um, they were all men. Um, and so it was much more likely that we were going to be taught um, English literature and in some cases American literature and the same in respect of history um, than New Zealand history. And that, of course, has many positives because of the great tradition um, who, who does not want to be grounded in the, in the, in the great writers um, from Britain in particular. Uh, but it was not leavened by any sense that there might be something more local and special that could also form part of the curriculum. And now that is quite different now. Um, I think there are still, you know, for all sorts of good reasons, points of continuity with what I'll loosely call British culture and history. But um, kids in New Zealand are also much more likely to be taught a bit more about their own history. Um, I probably grew up as a teenager knowing more about the origins of the Civil War than I did, for example, about the land wars in New Zealand in the 19th century. So that's probably a useful point of comparison. Um, this might be a good juncture, though, um, to read you a poem which speaks partly to this point. Um, uh, this point about um, the, the emergence of a New Zealand literature. It's also a poem which, if I remember rightly, was probably one of the first New Zealand poems I came across when I was at secondary school. So if you like, could read it and talk briefly about it. This is a poem um, by a poet called Ronald Mason, who wrote it in 1925. In those days, people seemed to be uh, very commonly known by their initials, whether they were cricketers or poets. So he's more commonly known as R.A. Kate Mason. And he wrote this poem when he was 20 years old. And I think the relative youth of the poet shows in the poem. And it's called, I think rather sardonically, though that's just my own view, Song of Allegiance. Here goes. Shakespeare, Milton, Keats are dead. Dunn lies in a lowly bed. Shelley at last calm doth lie, knowing whence we are and why. Byron, Wordsworth, both are gone. Coleridge, Beddoes, Tennyson. Postman neither knows nor cares how this heavy world now fares. Little clinging grains enfold all the mighty minds of old. They are gone, and I am here, stoutly bringing up the rear. Where they went with limber ease, toil I on with bloody knees. Though my voice is cracked and harsh, stoutly in the rear I march. Though my song have none to hear, boldly bring I up the rear. Now it sort of teeters on the edge of doggerel, poem by a 20 year old man, but I think it's opposite for this discussion because, at least in my interpretation, he's locating himself as part of a long lineage of great writers. He's not pretending to be as good as them. And he's saying, I'm going to practice my craft in this fairly plain-spoken, mm -hmm. rather laconic, Antipodean kind of way. Yes. And he wrote some subsequent poems, which also um, rather, um, rather described um, uh, his preference for a terse, laconic voice. So you could see there, back there in 1925, the kind of embers 
of literary nationalism. And is that when it begins? As recently as that, uh, that's I mean, 100 years ago. Uh, up until then, it was, as it were, the, the English classics that would have been the poems. Well, he, is, he is saying here, I've got something rougher, coarser, simpler mm -hmm. to offer, but I'm here on my bloodied knees, I'm going to speak my way. Mm -hmm. That's what he's telling so us. So New Zealand po poets up to that point, more often than not, would have, would have um, rendered their verse into more traditional mm -hmm. formats. And um, Victorian poets in New Zealand, Edwardian poets in New Zealand, um, here was a voice suddenly emerging. He wrote another poem a few years later, um, and I can't remember it exactly off the top of my head. Um, and it begins, the short sharp sword I got in Rome when Gaul's new lord came tramping home. And there that short sharp sword is again that terse, almost monosyllabic writing style. And there he's saying, I'm actually a bit like, um, Caesar or Tacitus, um, I'm, I'm uh, not one for great florid writing. But I thought in that, in that poem, there is just the beginnings. And, and from that period onwards, probably, you know, literary historians would, would probably differ, but probably up to the 1950s or 60s, there was that sort of um, effort to find something in the words of one New Zealand poet that was local and special, whose reference points were... Um, much more to do with New Zealand. There's a, a poem, a poet called Dennis Glover, who probably 20 years later wrote uh, something like, um, I do not dream of Sussex Downs or quaint old England's quaint old towns. I rather dream of what, what may yet be seen in Johnsonville or Geraldine to, you know, um, large New Zealand town. So you get a little bit of it there. Someone tried to say, I'm, I'm not so much part of that ancient tradition anymore. I'm here. And are these poets, these new poets, are they now household names in New Zealand? Have they become... Um, the R.A.K. Mason, I wouldn't say, was a household name. Um, but if you were had a conventional education which incorporated New Zealand literature in the curriculum in New Zealand, you would have... You would probably have heard of him, mm -hmm. uh, but now, as you say, it's he's, it's almost a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. um, Very good. Well, give us another one. I'm loving well, this. <laughs> and also, you read them so well. When I thought about uh, was that definition of Coleridge's definition of poetry is the best words in the best order, and I suppose another way of looking at poetry is that it's kind of um, a way of expressing our preoccupations in a lyrical form. So in choosing the poems today, I've tried to think about what are, what are preoccupations in New Zealand through time? And I also thought, what is a, given that, what's a poem that also speaks to something that's a bit more to do with the sense of connection between New Zealand and the United Kingdom? So I chose a poem um, by a New Zealand poet who's lived in London for a very long time. Her name is Fleur Adcock. Well, she's famous. Yes, I feel she's indeed. Famous. You can yeah. buy her books in yeah. Waterstones. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so here goes. Immigrant by Fleur Adcock. November 63. Eight months in London. I pause on the low bridge to watch the pelicans. They float swan-like, arching their white necks over only slightly ruffled bundles of wings burying awkward beaks in the lake's water. 
I clench cold fists in my Marks and Spencer's jacket and secretly test my accent once again. St. James's Park. St. James's Park. St. James's Park. Now, when the poet reads that final line, as I've heard her do in a recording, she essays um, the first St. James's Park with a real Antipodean twang. Mm. And by the time she's got to the third St. James's Park, she's trying to approximate a more rounded vowel. And for me, it's quite a poignant poem because it speaks to that experience of the expatriate. If you were a New I can't speak for her, but if you were a New Zealander of her generation, you would have grown up with this idea of London. As many New Zealanders did, a kind of imprint in their heads. Her parents, like perhaps my grandparents, would even have referred to the United Kingdom as home with a capital H, even though they weren't born there, even though they might be second or third generation New Zealanders. So you end up with this kind of cultural memory and you arrive expecting familiarity. But this is a rather lonely scene and she has the anxiety of not fitting in as she tries to, as she says, secretly test her accent. I'd forgotten there were pelicans in St James's There are, indeed. Did you know there were? No, I don't think no. so. Yes, there are. Yeah, you're yeah. not far from there here. Indeed. There are pelicans. I'm, I'm, yes, I mean, I remember as a child mm. seeing them. Isn't that wonderful? That's a, it's a great poem. Well done, her. Good. So she would, would, is she somebody who would now be taught in schools there? I mean, what, what are they yes. teaching? What is being taught today? Young New Zealanders mm. doing poetry at school, what will they be discovering? Poetry being taught in New Zealand would be a mixture of the traditional, uh, but they would also be taught Māori poets. They would be taught uh, uh, poets writing from the Pacific Islands. Um, you know, New Zealanders. You know, New Zealand is a very multicultural society, so its education system wants to teach young New Zealanders about the richness of their society. So the the kind of education I had, which was perhaps much more confined to the traditional, is no longer so much the case. Is there a Maori poet that you can recommend that people, if they're looking for? The one who most immediately comes to mind is a poet called Hone Tufare. Hone Tufare. Exactly. Good. Well, we'll put that on our reading list for those that want to do further. Mm-hmm. Home. Most definitely. And so you've brought us a third poem as well, mm. and that's um, about. A, a bird, am I right? I've chosen a, a poem called Huia by a poet called Bill Manhire, who is a contemporary New Zealand poet, uh, who I was fortunate enough to be taught by when I, when I studied at university in Wellington. And the Huia, um, a bit like the Kiwi, is part of our, what I call our, our, avian, um, our avian iconography. It's not quite as famous or as ubiquitous as the kiwi, uh, but it's a bird which features on stamps and coins, and you'll see a reference to that in the poem. And it, the, the poem gives voice to a bird that was um, hunted to extinction for its beautiful plumage, um, last seen probably around 1907. And Huia, the name of the bird and the title of the poem, is an approximation of the, um, the bird's call, in particular its distress call. Uh, but it also um, approximates the Māori w- phrase for where are you? 
And so that mixture of the distress call and the question, where are you, um, gives the poem a very plaintive tone. Um, it's beguilingly simple, um, but it, for me, um, it bears a lot of attention because it asks some quite deep questions about our relationship to nature. Um, it's a very important part of New Zealand's life, the proximity to nature and familiarity to nature and access to nature. And it prompts you to think about the transitoriness of things, prompts you to think about loss and memory. Um, and it's a very moving poem, which I'd be really happy to read now. If We'd like. be very happy to hear All it. Right. Huia by Bill Manhire. I was the first of birds to sing. I sang to signal rain. The one I loved was singing and singing once again. My wings were made of sunlight. My tail was made of frost. My song was now a warning and now a song of love. I sang upon a postage stamp. I sang upon your coins, but money courted beauty. You could not see the joins. Where are you when you vanish? Where are you when you're found? I'm made of greed and anguish, a feather on the ground. I lived among you once, and now I can't be found. I'm made of things that vanish, a feather on the ground. Excellent. Mm. So where would you point us if we wanted to explore more of New Zealand poetry? Mm -hmm. Where do we go? How do we do it? Well, the most accessible route, of course, is online where you would find many, even a quick Google of New Zealand poetry would um, take you to, um, to many, many poets. You could go to Waterstones, where you would find the collected works of Bill Manhire, whose poem I've just read now. You would find Fleur Adcock's work there as well. He was New Zealand's inaugural poet laureate, is that right? I think that is correct, yes. So he, yeah. Bill Manhire has quite a big place, would you say, in New Zealand poetry? Yes, um, very much so, both as a poet um, and as an academic. He's a professor of English literature um, at Victoria University in Wellington and founded um, the Institute of Modern Letters, which is a creative writing uh, school. So were you studying English literature when he taught you. Indeed I was. Brilliant. We felt that. I sensed it. <laughs> fluent way with which you spoke. Do you write poetry yourself? No, I do not. Perhaps fortunately for the universe, I do not. <laughs> no, no, because we, we've become friends with the High Commissioner from, where is it, who is a poet? St. Kitts. St. Kitts, and who now sends me, maybe sends yes, it to you too, yes. on a reasonably regular basis. Indeed. I get a, a poem uh, from him. So, marvellous. We think you're brilliant. Good, good stuff. Pleasure to talk to you. That's it for this podcast. Our thanks to His Excellency Bede Corey, who chose to read Song of Allegiance by R.A.K. Mason, We Are by Bill Manhar, Immigrant by Fleur Adcock. Join us next time when we'll be exploring another Commonwealth country with more poetry from the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth Poetry Podcast is presented by Giles Brandreth and Afra Brandreth and produced by the University of Chester. Our special thanks to them and to the Royal Commonwealth Society. And to you, of course, for listening.